Please turn with me in your Bibles to 11, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We're looking this morning at the last portion of chapter 11. We've been studying this throughout the Advent season. This morning we come to verse 30 of chapter 11, and we'll read through chapter 12, verse 2. Please hear the word of God. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I often quote the classic Calvin and Hobbes cartoons because they can be deceptively profound. It's amazing how often the dialogue between a six-year-old boy and his imaginary tiger friend can provoke us to think more deeply about life. For instance, every Christmas, Calvin had to wrestle with his sins, how he was always on the naughty list and how he could possibly get off of it. He also wrestled with believing in Santa Claus because he couldn't see him, couldn't prove that he existed. For example, one of those strips goes this way. Calvin says to Hobbes, this whole Santa Claus thing just doesn't make sense. Why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? And if he doesn't exist, what's the meaning of all of this? Hobbes replies, I don't know, isn't this a religious holiday? And Calvin says, yeah, but actually I've got the same questions about God. Later in that series of strips, 
Calvin says to Hobbes, well, I've decided that I do believe in Santa Claus, no matter how preposterous he sounds. Hobbes says, what convinced you? Calvin says, a simple risk analysis. I want presents, lots of presents. Why risk not getting these presents over a matter of belief? Heck, I'll believe anything they want. Hobbes says, how cynically enterprising of you. And, and Calvin says, it's the spirit of Christmas. You see, under the surface, it is answering those questions that everybody needs to ask, especially at Christmas time. What about my sins? Is God just some tallying God up in heaven marking off the things we do wrong and trying to balance it against the things we do right? Is that really, is there a God like that? And is so, if so, is that what he's doing? What about our sins? Do I even believe in a God that I can't see and I can't prove with my five senses? And what are the gifts or the rewards that I'm looking for in life? What are the promises that get me up every morning and motivate me to live my life? We've been looking at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 answers those questions, those most important questions to life. Hebrews 11, as we saw a few weeks ago, as we started this Advent series, we saw that it begins with defining what faith is. Not an entirely exhaustive definition of faith, but it gets to the core of what faith is. It says this, and this is from the NIV translation, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Later on, it talks about the impact of faith. If you have faith, it says in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Back to those same basic questions. Does he exist? And if so, what rewards does he promise to us? What are his promises? The rest of the chapter, as we've seen, is just a list of examples of Old Testament believers, people who lived before the first coming of Christ, before the incarnation, who only had the promise of the first coming of Christ. And even not even anything like the clarity of the promises that we see as we look back on that first coming of Christ talks about how they live by faith still in those promises as they understood it. And we've been learning as we look at what it meant for them to live by faith in the promises of the coming of the Messiah, what does it mean for us to live by faith in a second coming of our Lord and Messiah? In chapter 12, I read just a moment ago in verse 1, it says that the old, it calls the Old Testament saints a great cloud of witnesses. They surround us, teaching us, exhorting us, encouraging us to have faith in the God who exists and to live by that faith, to trust his promises. And that's really the issue is trust. Another common definition for faith that you probably have heard before is that faith is knowing what's true. Of course, as a Christian, that means the, the word of God, the Bible. This is ultimate truth. Knowing what is true assenting to that truth or believing you know it's one thing to say I know it you can know the Bible but not believe it but you have to assent to that truth believe that it is true 
And then the final element of faith is trusting that it's true. In other words, acting upon it, living by it, setting all your goals and rewards by what the promises of God are in his word. And so that's what faith is. And we've seen this in the lives of these Old Testament saints. Last time we talked about Moses, how his life exhibited what it meant to live by faith in promises that God gave him, ultimately promises about the coming of Christ. What we're going to notice as we move beyond Moses, as we move from verse 29 to verse 30, is that the, even though he's looking at, a, at a actually a relatively condensed part of Old Testament history, he skips over a big chunk of it when he goes from Moses to Joshua. Because we're going to pick up with Joshua in, in the promised land, Jericho, but what about those 40 years in the wilderness? Well, again, just like he didn't talk about Adam and Eve because their lives were actually known for their act of unbelief and disobedience, so that time in the wilderness for the Israelites was largely known as a time of unbelief and disobedience and idolatry. So he skips over that. He says, okay, let's talk about the next prominent time where faith was really lived out by God's people, and that was when they came into the promised land under Moses' successor, Joshua. And as we look at the life of Joshua, we look at what happened when they came to Jericho, the first city that they had to encounter in the promised land, we learn that we need to trust God when obedience seems foolish. It's an interesting lesson of faith. But if you're ready, if you want to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to trust God when obeying God's will is going to look foolish to the people around you. If you're not prepared to do that, then your faith is not where it needs to be. God's promise to Joshua in chapter 1, as the Israelites are on the, on the, the doorstep of the promised land, this is the promise that God gave to him. He said, God says to Joshua, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now God immediately confirmed that promise by parting the Jordan River at flood stage so that they could walk through on dry land. But then they encountered the first real obstacle of taking the land that God had promised to give to them. And that was the city of Jericho. Jericho wasn't a big city, but it was the gateway to the valley that led into the promised land. And it was really the watchdog for the Canaanites. It was, their city was known not for its size, but for the massive, high, thick walls that were around the city that protected the city. From a military standpoint, it seemed invincible. What you find out is God get, continues to lead Joshua and the people of Israel is he gives them a battle plan. And you're not going to find this battle plan in the art of war or any other strategic military manual. What he says to them is, I want you to go and put, take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, where there's their, that's where their trust is. The Ark of the Covenant represented their trust to God, for God to do this. He says, take the Ark of the Covenant and march around the city of Jericho once, the first day. Then do it again the second day. That's all. Just march around the city, third day, fourth day, all the way up to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, I want you to not march around the city once, but I want you to march around it seven times. And on the seventh time around, I want you to let out this huge victory shout. That's it. 
That was the battle plan. Now, you can easily imagine the Canaanites in the city of Jericho looking over the wall of the city, watching this ragtag group march around with their ark, and you can imagine they were laughing at them. I'm, I'm sure they were mocking them, throwing things at them. But they were obedient to God's will. They trusted in his word that somehow this foolish, seemingly foolish activity would bring them a victory. Well, we know what happened. When they let out that victory shout after the seventh time around on the seventh day, the walls came tumbling down. They were flattened. And Jericho was defenseless. And it was an easy victory for God's people. The one Canaanite who was saved, actually the one Canaanite and her household, her family, the only ones that were saved in the whole city of Jericho was to be destroyed. Everything was to be destroyed. The only ones that survived was the family of Rahab, Rahab the prostitute, this pagan, idol-worshiping, Canaanite prostitute was spared and became part of the people of God because she believed in God and his promises. You think I'm reading too much into the text? She literally says it. Let me take you back to Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. This is, the, this is what Rahab the prostitute said to the spies, that she, spies from Israel that she hid. She explains why she betrayed her own people and did that. This is a reason. This is beginning in verse 9. I know that the Lord, and the Lord there is all in caps if you see it in the English, in the English translations, which means it's the covenant name Yahweh that God gave to Moses for the people of God. I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a pretty clear statement of faith. That's as strong a statement of faith as many in Israel would have had. She believed that God is the Lord. He's the sovereign Lord over all things. He's the Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. And he's made promises to his people, and I want to be a part of that promise. That's available to any of you this morning. Yahweh, the God of Scripture, of the, of the Bible, he exists. And he has made promises to a people, his people, and all you have to do is believe. Believe the promises and live accordingly. And you will be a part of everything that he, every reward, every outcome, every promise will be fulfilled. So, interesting, just one more point from that. Again, this is a idol-worshiping, pagan, Canaanite prostitute who did nothing but express her faith, and she was saved. She did do one more thing, which is actually interesting. And again, I want to be careful not to say that I know this is true. This is some speculation that goes beyond Scripture. But I think there's an implication here. The spy said, if you want to be saved, when we go and destroy a city, you need to put a red cord, a scarlet cord, in your window. Now, why red? That's emphasized. It's a red cord. Why? I have to believe, and I, I strongly suspect, that the spies were thinking of how the Israelites were spared 
from death in, in the land of Egypt. When the angel of death went over Egypt and killed all the firstborn, how were the Israelites saved? By putting the blood of the Passover lamb over their doors, on the top of the doors, the sides of the doors, as a sign of believing God's promise to spare them from death. Not that much later in Israel's history do you have Rahab being spared, her and her household being spared by putting a red cord in her window. Again, they're looking forward. They don't fully understand who Christ is, what he's going to do, what atonement looks like, but they know that the blood must be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. If you think about it, though, how does this apply to us living today in much different circumstances? It's still true that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be willing to look foolish to your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Obeying God, believing his promises, and living accordingly, living faithfully as a disciple of Jesus Christ is going to make you look foolish to the people around you. And that's something we inherently don't like. Something we recoil at is the idea of looking foolish to the people around us, looking dumb, looking superstitious, looking primitive. But you better embrace that, because that's the offense of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. That's the very epitome, the very ultimate point of our hope is Christ crucified in our place, dying for our sins. But what the world hears when they hear us talk like that, they hear us say, oh, you, you've committed your life to following a poor Jewish rabbi who died 2,000 years ago as a, being crucified, executed as, a, as an insurrectionist by the Romans. That's... That's what you live for? That's, that's who you live for? That sounds foolish to the world. Think about how you grow in your faith. This is God's word, again, the, the will of God, his commandment to us, how you grow in faith. It looks foolish to the world, doesn't it? The means of grace that are given to God's people to cause them to grow in faith and to draw near to God looks foolish to the world. You read this book every day. A book that was written between 2,000 years ago and 3,500 years ago, you read it every day and you live your life by it. That looks foolish to the world. How out of date can you be? Think about praying. You believe that God hears you, the God of the universe hears you when you talk to him. Even when you think your thoughts to him, he hears you. That looks foolish to the world. We're told that when we eat a very small, tiny square of bread and, and drink a very tiny cup of wine or juice, that that will grow our faith. Looks foolish to the world. We rest one day out of seven. Give up one-seventh of our schedule to the Lord. It's the Lord's day. We give up one-tenth of our income when we tithe to the church. One-tenth of our income. The world looks at that and says, that's foolish. What kind of return do you get for that? We live by a principle that says that we store up treasure for ourselves by giving our money and our resources away. That looks foolish to the world. So the first question I want to ask you this morning is, are you willing to look like a fool? 
Are you willing to embrace that identity? The world wants to impress all these identities on you. Do you embrace the identity of being a fool for Christ? Because that's who you are as a disciple in the eyes of the world. But remember, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me because he took up his cross to save you and me. And in Philippians 2, it says, and I like the way that the New King James translates it, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of all the glory and honor that he deserved as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He emptied himself, made himself of no reputation in order to save you. He who is rich became poor so that you might in him become rich. You see, this is why faith is so important. You're going to face that kind of rejection from the world. You need faith. You need to be sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see or else you're not going to pay that price of looking foolish in the eyes of the world. Paul says, remember what some of you were in the eyes of the world when he saved you. You were foolish, weak, low, and despised in 1 Corinthians 1. But in him you become strong. Second lesson we learn from the list, the long list he gives here of Old Testament saints is that we need to trust God when we succeed in life. When we're successful, when things are going well, when things are going smoothly, when we're getting what we want in this fallen world, we need to trust God when we succeed. Look at verse 32. It's interesting here that he's only up to Joshua <laughs> and the conquest of Canaan. That's still in the, in, in the beginning of Scripture. still a lot of the Old Testament to go. And it's almost like he kind of realizes that. And he says, well, if I dwell on each Old Testament saint that is a great example of living by faith, I could be here all day. So he, he, he kind of hits fast forward. And he starts listing. He just lists some names of people that he could write volumes about. Some from the book of Judges that he starts with. And then he mentions David and Samuel. And then he mentions the prophets as a group, a group. He just, mentions, just calls them the prophets. And he says, what can we learn from how they believe that God exists and that he rewards those who believe his promises? Well, verses 33 to 35, if you look there, he, what he does is he basically summarizes, he begins by summarizing some of the accomplishments of these great men and women of the faith. Great military victories, just reigns over Israel, escaping the danger of lions and swords and fire and enemy armies, raising the dead. And you think of Elijah raising the son of the widow of Zarephath or Elisha raising the son of the Shunammite woman. Great victories of faith. Of course, it wasn't that these Old Testament saints did it. God did it through them. All they contributed was faith of believing that God could do it. But it was God who did what is accredited to these Old Testament saints. Faith, as we've said several times now, faith in and of itself has no power. You know, some people just want to say, well, I have faith, and therefore that's all it's important. As long as I have faith in something, it's, well... <laughs> Faith is in and of itself worthless unless the object of that faith 
is powerful. We deal with something that's called the health and wealth theology, unfortunately, in the church. It's a false gospel, a false teaching, prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it. And what they say there is that faith is given to you almost like a supernatural power. It turns you into almost like a, 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 a superman, that you can do things supernatural because you've been given this power of faith. And the, the emphasis is on the faith itself, not the object of faith. And it says that our testimony to the world is when we are happy and healthy and wealthy and successful in life. That's the testimony that God's people are to have to the world, that we are blessed people. That's what prosperity gospel teaches. It's a false gospel. It's oddly popular in prisons and in poor countries, which I cannot figure out why. But I only bring that up not because I think anybody here probably believes that this morning. There may be somebody here, but probably not. I bring it up because when we don't really think about it, when we, don't, when we allow ourselves to be influenced by the culture around us and our own prosperity and our own opportunities, we tend to think like prosperity gospel people, don't we? And you know how you, you can check yourself on that? What do you pray for? What, what, when you think about your prayer list, what are the things you pray for every day? Are you praying according to what God has promised? Or are you praying according to what the world defines as success? In other words, are your prayers about being more healthy, more wealthy, more successful in your job? See, your prayers need to match the promises of God. God has not promised that you're going to be beautiful. God's not promised that you're going to be physically strong. God's not promised that you're going to be highly successful in your career. God has not promised that you're going to have a big bank account. He's not promised any of that to any of us. But when you compare those things, those earthly rewards, to what he has promised, they're just like dirt. They're worthless. They're empty. But you need to pray like someone who believes in the promises of God, not the American dream. You need to trust God when you succeed. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really the world is finding its place in him. This is the danger of victories in life, whatever they look like. This is the danger of being successful, of being honored in this world. It becomes a temptation of the evil one to become prideful, to take credit for what God has done, to start to be self-reliant and to wander away and forget God. I'm reminded of the lepers that Jesus met. He met 10 lepers one day. Lepers were total outcasts. They had nothing in this world. But if they could possibly be healed, they'd be restored to everything this world could offer them. But they had to be healed, and Jesus did that for them. He healed ten lepers, made them completely well. But only one came back to thank him and praise him. He said, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? It was a Samaritan. <laughs> the Samaritan, not the Jew, but the Samaritan who came back. So one out of ten. The lesson that Jesus is teaching there is that when we are blessed in this life, 
It needs to lead to thanksgiving, humility, and praise to God for the blessing, undeserved blessing he's given. But really, if you've been with the Lord very long, and if you have walked as a disciple in this fallen world for very long, you know that the biggest times of growth in your life are not when you're successful, not when you're healthy, not when your relationships are all all very positive and warm and fuzzy. It's when you go through the trials that your faith grows. And so we need to not only trust God when he gives us commands that make us look foolish, we need to trust God not only when we are successful and honored in this world, but we need to trust God when we suffer. At the end of verse 35, after listing all those successes of all those Old Testament saints, he begins to list the sufferings of the Old Testament saints, what they endured. And he talks, he says, some were tortured, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. How did they endure? I mean, some of the incredibly uh, awful suffering that prophet, like the prophet Jeremiah went through. How did he endure being in a, in a deep pit with, with only mud to, to accompany him? How did he endure the beating and the suffering? Isaiah, you know, was, um, suffered for the word of God and, and he died for his faith, the Jewish tradition tells us. It mentions it, it says they were stoned, they were sawn in two. That's what Jewish tradition says happened to Isaiah. He was sawn in two and killed with a sword. How did they endure facing death for serving God? How did they endure? It says they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They were given the option of denying the Lord, disobeying the Lord, and getting life in this world, preserving their life in this world, preserving their possessions in this world, or giving that up because they believed in a better eternal life to come. You see, they had faith in God's promises. God had promised, in the words of the psalmist, God promised that he would not abandon them to the grave. God promised in the words of the psalmist that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Belief in life after death, believing that that the ultimate promises that God gave to us were not for this life, but for the life to come beyond death, that was there in the Old Testament. It's not as clear as the New Testament, absolutely not. That's because God's revelation is progressive and it gets greater and greater as the the history of redemption and as scripture progresses towards the New Testament, they get more and more light. But they always knew that death was not the end. And so they lived for this better life, the writer of Hebrews says. They knew that God was sending the Messiah, the one promised to Adam and Eve that would crush the head of the serpent somehow deliver them eternally. They, they believed that. There's a wonderful passage in the first chapter of, of 1 Peter where Peter is talking about the gospel, the message of salvation through Christ, and then he says, he talks about the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, the ones who were just mentioned here by the writer in Hebrews. He mentions the prophets, and this is what he says about them. Concerning this salvation, the gospel, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours 
searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Did they fully understand who Jesus Christ would be? Did they fully understand what his death on the cross would mean? What, you know, did they understand? All? No. But they did understand that the Messiah was going to suffer and that he was going to provide a way into these eternal glories. They believed and therefore they were saved by the promises of God. The writer goes on to say, They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves. They were poor, and they were poorly clothed. They were often sick and tormented, abused and homeless. But notice what he says at the very end of chapter 11. Verse 39. And all these, though commended for, through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Literally, in the original language, it says, did not receive the promise. And that's an important distinction because they did receive many fulfillments of God's promises. Moses got to lead the people, you know, lead people out of Egypt. Joshua got to lead them into the promised land and conquer the promised land. David got promised the kingship and he attained the kingship. A lot of promises were fulfilled, but they didn't receive the promise. The seed of the woman that crushed the head of the serpent. The promise of the coming Messiah. They did not receive they did not get to see the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. They didn't get to witness the life, the perfect life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus Christ. They didn't get to witness him die on the cross for our sins. They didn't get to witness him being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven. But what they were given, the revelation they were given, they understood and they believed and they lived accordingly. And they knew that it would lead to a better life after death. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, they believed that coming for them, for, for their salvation, was one, a child who would be born of a virgin, who would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. The writer of Hebrews says, understand that there's only ever been one church. In the Old Testament, the church was called Israel. In the New Testament and beyond, it's called the church. But God has only ever had one covenant people. And we are all saved through that Messiah who was sent 2,000 years ago. And we will all be perfected when he comes again to bring to fulfillment all of his promises. We together are saved with these Old Testament saints. Remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were suffering. They were being persecuted. And they were being tempted to go back to the comfortable beliefs of their parents and grandparents who had rejected Christ as a Messiah, many of them. They were tempted to, re to leave Christ and go back to their comfortable religion that they were born into. And the writer through this chapter is calling on them to persevere, press on, endure by faith, keep your eyes on the Lord. The Apostle Paul was such an example of that. Remember last week we said that everything that he had attained in that, that religion of his youth, like trying to keep the law and be a good person and be a zealot for his religion, 
everything that he gained, all the status, all the honor, all the wealth that he gained through that, he says, I consider it as rubbish, nothing, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. How did his life change? He went from being the persecutor to the persecuted. He lists his life. He, he describes his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to the, the life and ministry of Paul. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, day, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, with often without food and cold and exposure. And so it's with great credibility that Paul could go to the churches that he had planted and that he was revisiting and he could encourage them in this way. This is what it says in Acts 14. This is what he said to the church. He says, he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I say all this as someone who's had a pretty sheltered life. I am wealthy by the world's standards. I have not suffered much. I've been healthy almost my entire life. I have a wonderful family, a wonderful marriage. I have about as good a life in a fallen world as a sinner can ever have. But I acknowledge that I'm the aberration, not the norm. And it is normal for believers to suffer. If for no other reason, because you look foolish in the eyes of the world, you're going to suffer as a result of that, if not in many other ways. Suffering is the result of sin. Suffering in and of itself is not good. It's a result of sin. But God can redeem your suffering, and he does redeem the suffering in the life of those who put their faith and trust in him. He uses it to refine us and strengthen us. That's what Peter says actually before, uh, the verses before the one I read earlier. Beginning in verse 6 in 1 Peter 1, he says, In this in the salvation that's been revealed, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But if you carry nothing away from the study of Hebrews and what it means to live by faith, I want you to always realize that faith is the most precious gift that God has given you. There is nothing more important in your life than the faith that God has given you. It is more valuable than a lot of gold. All the gold in the world is not more valuable than the faith that God has given you. And you need to be thankful for the difficulties, the trials, the conflicts, the deprivations, the health issues, whatever it is, the suffering that you're going through. If you're going through it in faith, the promise is that he will strengthen you, he'll refine you, he'll make you more like Christ, and he'll draw you to himself if you continue to believe his promises and live accordingly. In verse 1 of chapter 12, the writer comes to his conclusion. 
That's why I included the first two verses, because that's where he gets to his final charge to the people he's addressing. He sounds like a coach during a timeout in, a, in an intense game, firing up his team by sending them, you know, before he sends them out onto the field for battle. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. It's this cloud of witnesses is all around us. They're like the, the, the spectators as we run our part of the race who are cheering us on. Moses, David, Noah, Isaiah, they're cheering us on. The image of a relay race. You run your leg of the race, you pass the baton, this message of salvation, you pass it to the next generation, and then you graduate to being a part of the cloud of witnesses. And that's what your life is to be. Think about it. Your life is to be this witness to the next generation of what it means to live by faith. A lot of people read that verse and they think that the saints, what he's saying is there's a cloud of witnesses watching us as we run our leg of this relay race. They think that the people who have gone before us, the Old Testament saints and the believers since then that have gone to be with the Lord, that they're peering over the walls of heaven and watching everything we do. I don't think that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. I don't, the Bible doesn't address whether people in heaven have any awareness of what's happening here on earth or not. We, I, I've been asked that question before. I don't know if they're at all aware of what's happening on earth. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying it's the life of these faithful witnesses. It's, these, it's the life of these people who believed God's promises, lived accordingly, ran their race, they finished their race, they've received the crown, and now they, by the testimony of their lives of faith, they are witnesses to us to encourage us to endure and finish our leg. That's why back in verse 4, speaking of Abel, he says, and through his faith, though he died, Abel still speaks. After you die, your life of faith is still going to speak to the people that you've impacted throughout your life. What a great ongoing testimony you have to the next generation and even the next generation after that. As people remember your life of living according to the promises of God. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 say, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He pushes us back to the object of faith. Don't get, don't get all preoccupied with faith itself. It's the object of faith that you focus on. And that is Jesus. The key is in verse 2 of chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We've been talking a lot about Noah, Moses, David, Isaiah. These, are not, these men, as great as they might have been, are not the object of our faith. They are examples of other fallen sinners like you and me who by God's grace were given the gift of faith and lived accordingly, and therefore they're a testimony to us. But they are just examples. Jesus Christ is an example of what it means to live by faith. He was the perfect example. You want to know what living by faith without any flaw or any, any sin whatsoever, what it looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. He was the ultimate perfect example of what it means to live by faith, but he's so much more than that. He's the object of our faith. He is 
God in human flesh. He is the one who is sovereign on the throne, who can do all things. And as we trust in him, even if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, we can do the will of God because he is all-powerful. He is the founder, the writer says, the founder of your faith, the author, some translations say, the source of your faith. He's the one who gave you the gift of faith. It comes from him. He's the founder of your faith, and he is the perfecter of your faith. He is the one who is leading you. He's with you, like he was with Joshua, leads you through the trials, through the battles, through the conflicts, through the sufferings of this life. He is the one refining your faith because he's the perfecter of your faith. One day your faith will be sight. You will see him perfected in body and soul and there will be no more need for faith in your life. But for now, it's the most precious thing you possess. I'm going to end with this promise from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You've heard it many times. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, of all the gifts that are going to be given and received in the next few days, it's the gift of faith that you gave us, maybe recently for some of us, maybe a long time ago for others, but it's the most important thing we've ever received. By faith, we are saved. By faith, we see the one true God, Yahweh, who exists. And by faith, we are saved by the blood of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we draw closer to you through him as we trust in your promises. Clear up our sight, Lord. Help us to see Christ more clearly and serve him more completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.